Louise Cooney's Open Book, a Go Loud original podcast. I'm Louise Cooney and you're very welcome back to my podcast, Open Book, where each week I sit down with well-known personalities for honest conversations about life and the stories that shape it. My guest this week is Rosanna Davison. We chat about her fertility journey, welcoming her daughter's surrogate mother home during the war in Ukraine and conceiving her beautiful identical twin boys naturally by total surprise. I really think you're going to love this episode. I had goosebumps. I had tears. It's just such an incredible story. Okay, so today on the podcast, we have Rosanna Davison. Thank you so much for joining us, Rosie. Rosie is the author of When Dreams Come True, Eat Yourself Fish and the number one bestseller, Eat Yourself Beautiful. She is a qualified nutritionist with a Master of Science degree in Personalised Nutrition from Middlesex University, a BA Honours degree from UCD. She left to global prominence at the age of 19 when she was crowned Miss World 2003 in China. I remember that so well. In the years since that... Oh, I feel so old! (laughs) In the years since that, she has enjoyed a busy international career as a model, writer and media personality. She currently lives in Dublin with her husband, Wesley, and their three children, Sophia, Hugo and Oscar, and their dog, Ted. I'm just so honoured to have you on here today. I'm so excited to chat to you and to chat about your journey and, you know, your kids and your fertility experience and your book. I really, really enjoyed reading your book. It really hit me right in the heart and I found myself crying with, you know, for your struggles and also with happiness reading it. And I learned so much from it because I'm sure that's why you wanted to speak about it, to teach people about everything to do with what you went through, because it's such a complex journey. So thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. You know, it's a huge honour to chat to you and chat about a subject that um, I suppose affects so many people as well, um, which is fertility and family and the F word, I suppose. Um, and, you know, it's, I'm just delighted to come on and talk to you. So thank you very much for having me. And I'm sorry to make you cry. I'll, I'll try not to do it again. <laughs> not at all. No, it's lovely. It's That's what I love when I'm reading a book. I want to feel those emotions and I want to learn and I want to experience other people's stories. And you do that so beautifully. Mm. So I have a couple of quick fire questions to get started before we go into the more heavy hitting in-depth questions. <clears throat> So these are kind of ad hoc. You don't know what these are and it will just kind of get you answering honestly and we'll learn a little bit about you too. So I know you're very into your reading. When you're reading, do you prefer a tearjerker or an uplifter? You know what? Probably a tearjerker. Like you, I like to feel all the emotions, maybe bring me to a dark place. And as I'll probably chat to you later about, I love books that are a little bit dark and a little bit deep you know, sort of spy books or murder mysteries, things like that. I I sort of stay away from anything too light and chiclet. So um, definitely ones that are quite emotive and um, yeah, maybe make you shed a few tears as well. Do you prefer fantasy or true to life? I think true to life, but a little bit of everything. And again, I I do read a mix of, of everything too, but um, I do like a true story. It's lovely to know that what you're reading is based on a true story, I think. Would you consider yourself book smart or street smart? Probably. Well, if I was to ask my husband, he would say book smart because a a large chunk of our relationship has been me spent in front of the computer studying or in front of books studying. You know, he thinks he's street smart. Um, So, yeah, probably more 
book smart just because I've I've done I don't know about seven years in college <laughs> yeah time. you can tell that reading your books so the detail you go into it's incredible but it's probably good that you balance each other out as well and I do think you're a bit street smart you've been through a lot yeah you know you've learned a lot you can see that yeah. through your writing and through yeah, everything you share hopefully <laughs> well I'm, I'm very excited to have you on today to chat about your I suppose your your experience with books in your life would you have considered yourself a big reader always Yes, well, you know, I feel lucky um, to have been brought up um, by parents who love to read. And I have two younger brothers, so my mom and dad really instilled in us a love of books. And, you know, from really when we were little, uh, they used to read us bedtime stories. Uh, I used to love um, this one called Spot the Dog, which is a real kind of 80s childhood book but I now have the books for my children and some of the books I have for my kids are from my childhood and some are sort of newer versions as well. I love the power of books especially for children to just really spark your imagination and just bring you to a different world and you know so yeah we were brought up with the love of books and you know for little Easter presents or birthday presents we were always given a book and a lot of those books I've kept for my children and it's nice now Sophia's really into books and we read to, to her every night before bed but the, my two boys Hugo and Oscar who are just 20 months are getting into books now and previously they would have just eaten them or ripped them apart but they're <laughs> actually sitting down and focusing more on the pictures and the words so it's been really nice to watch their sort of book evolution as well. Yeah it's so lovely and then, I'd say for you to be at this stage yeah. now reading the children's books as opposed to reading all the science books that you you had to read and delve into for so long on your fertility journey. I know and I still and I suppose through my my nutrition studies as well I bought a lot of the kind of sciencey nerdy biology books and nutrition books and things like that and I had to read them and so as an adult my book reading has been more sort of probably inconsistent than it was when I was younger and it's been more just you know on holidays when I've had time um, I, I am back um, reading more now and I just read a book called Enduring Love by Ian McGowan and I have another book called Snow by John Banville um, ready to read uh, but I found last year because the boys were newborns, I just didn't, I didn't have the brain power. I could barely figure out what day it was most of the time. Well, that's it. I think the stage you're at in your life, you definitely have to prioritise sleeping for sure. I was amazed at your productivity levels in the book. Like it's so inspiring and you've definitely like motivated me to try and get a bit more into my day. Like how did you manage everything that you did, even like emotionally, as well as staying on top of your work, as well as staying on top of your, your education and your masters. And it, it's just unbelievable. So in saying that, which book in your life would you say has been your biggest teacher? The book that has perhaps stuck with me most or inspired me on a different level to other books has been I think it's a favorite for lots of people but it's Perfume by Patrick Seusskind I think I'm pronouncing that right it's just flawless I think in its delivery you know it's masterful character development it's all about um, the the central character's sense of smell and he just uses this beautiful evocative flamboyant language to sort of tell the story and I remember just reading that book and thinking gosh I want to use this language in my everyday life I want to you know he just wrote in a way that I'd never experienced before and um, it's a book that's always inspired maybe my understanding of the English language and how we can use words to evoke emotions and feelings. I just, 
thought it was a spectacular book. There was another book which I read called House of Leaves. Um, it was written in a really unusual physical format. It was about a family who had moved into a new house and they discovered um, mysteries in the house and secrets and they found different passages and rooms within the house. But the words are written to sort of reflect what the family is experiencing within the house. So say they would find a, a winding staircase and then you start reading the words winding in the page. It was just one of those books, again, that stuck with me and it opened up a whole new understanding of how a book can be written and how it can and you know bring you into its world and and I couldn't tear myself away from it. Well I'm definitely gonna have to add those to my list but before we move away from books being really great teachers I have to credit you on your book because I learned so much. I know you brought Sophia into the world by a gestational surrogate in November 2019 and that the journey behind that and the 14 pregnancy losses you've experienced and the telling of that story of the miscarriages and the the trauma and all of the different tests you had to do like I've never ever read or even spoken to anybody about that level of detail before I think the only experience I have ever had of hearing about miscarriage was in a book as well like learning and I was like my god does that happen because people don't really talk about it you know yes you know as well as you would have read in the book, I when I experienced um, our first miscarriage back in 2016, it was a whole new world to me. You know, I had had friends who'd had miscarriages, but had been told by their doctors it was a genetic anomaly in in the developing embryo, and that they'd most likely go on to have a healthy full term pregnancy, and they did. So it just wasn't in my radar. I just thought, well, you know, you'd have a loss that's really sad, but then you'll just have a baby after that. So when it happened to me and it happened repeatedly, I, at the beginning, I just felt, you know, I was traumatic and I felt alone and didn't know who to turn to, to talk to because nobody else I knew had experienced that sort of level of loss repeatedly. And even the specialists I was seeing couldn't really understand somebody who got pregnant very easily but couldn't maintain it past about the six and a half week mark and so I went through all the emotions of feeling um, like furious and frustrated at my body and feeling that my reproductive system was broken and dysfunctional and wondering had I you know that the self-blame that you go through and the guilt and the feelings of um, you know I need to do better I need to try harder why did I have that cup of tea or coffee? I shouldn't have gone to the gym or Pilates. I should, you know, I should have sat home and wrapped myself up in bubble wrap. And it's exhausting going through those emotions. Anyone who's, you know, ever tried to get pregnant and, and had a difficult time or lost a pregnancy will, will just tell you how exhausting it is to battle infertility month after month. And um, so I did a lot of work on myself and sort of came through it and, um, hand in hand with um, being diagnosed. Well, I, I don't even want to use the word diagnosed because um, this immune system issue was the nearest that the doctors could come to some kind of diagnosis. Um, I'm not sure if it was that ultimately, but getting test results and working on myself emotionally meant that I sort of came through it and made peace with the idea that I was the girl who couldn't have a baby naturally and I needed help. I needed a surrogate. And I found that I was able to 
after I don't know, a year or two of, of struggling with it, I was able to actually say out loud that, you know, I can't have a baby. You know, my friends are able to have healthy, full-term, easy pregnancies, but I'm not able to, and that's fine. There's lots of other positive aspects to my life, but I'm just not able to have a baby. So I was kind of fine with that. And I I, I was so fed up and tired of feeling angry at my body and, and frustrated with it that I just sort of came to accept it. And I think that inspired my desire to talk about it publicly and to ultimately write a book on it, because I just felt, why should I hide this? You know, surely other people are going through something similar and other couples are having this, you know, similar experiences to me. Why should I feel ashamed and alone and traumatized? You know, why can't I talk about it? And of course, when I did talk about it, I realized that so many others do go through it. Statistically, is it one in four? I'm trying to think of statistic now it's one in four or one in six couples I think one in six i read in, in your one in six yeah. yeah um which is a lot like i was shocked oh so it, it is it is shocking and you know once i did start talking about it i realized how many others are are suffering and you know in silence or or too ashamed to talk about it or you know we don't even uh, really learn about it like until you talk about it it's not something that people often would share information on well, that's it. And I do understand. I mean, I wasn't brave enough to talk about it when I was going through it, apart from just speaking to close family and friends. It was only afterwards when it all worked out that I felt confident mm-hmm. enough to speak about it. So I can understand why it's such a difficult, sensitive, emotive subject to talk about um, for, for anyone. But yeah. I do feel there's such power in sharing our stories to to help others and to show them that there are challenges that we all face and um, life is full of challenges. And unfortunately, this was this was ours in this case. Yeah. Um, and, and to give hope as well. And it is shrouded in mystery. So I think you trying to uncover a little bit of that and make it clearer for people. I'm sure there's people struggling who use your book as a Bible. And it is like, I've never tried to have kids, not yet in my life, but I 100% have always wanted them. And I could totally relate to you when you're saying that in your book. So it it really does scare me, that thought. And it is something that I'm aware of, you know. And, Mm. you know, I just, I found it such a great teacher to learn about that. Was there any books that you read around fertility or miscarriages or surrogacy that you found to be a great teacher during that time? Do you know what? Not so much books. I did buy a couple of books um, that tried to explain miscarriage and multiple miscarriage from a sort of scientific perspective. Mm -hmm. But there was nothing I could find that maybe was like my book, which was a human story with a bit of, you know, the science and medical side integrated into it. Um, I did troll through a lot of internet sites and forums and things like that, looking for stories. And as I mentioned in my book, actually, we met a couple on a family holiday years ago who had tried for 15 years to have a baby and pretty much just given up hope um, until they out of nowhere fell pregnant with their son. And I just thought if that can happen to that couple, there's a tiny glimmer of hope that can happen to us. And, you know, I held on to that story and, yeah, there was a handful of stories I'd read on the internet that I just reminded myself of and held on to. Um, but there was nothing substantial enough to, for me to be able to say, well, if this happened to them, that will happen to us. You know, and that's the thing I think about human reproduction and fertility. It's still so 
you know, medically it's so mysterious and um, there are plenty of tests and there is research out there. But for the most part, a lot of it is still a mystery to to the specialists as, as well as um, to us trying to have families. Mm-hmm. And you don't know until you start trying if you can have a baby or not. Mm-hmm. And that's the difficult thing. And then, you know, I have friends who have had one or two children but would love a, a second or third and are finding it difficult so the secondary in- infertility is just as mysterious i read somewhere actually that compared to other animals say mammals or other types of animals humans are genetically so complex that um, that's a potential theory as to why fertility can be more complex than humans and um, which makes sense when you think of what it takes to to grow a human you know all the the complicated brain and um, everything else. I know we are definitely complex beings (laughs) and I admire your vulnerability in speaking about it and I also really admire your relationship with Wes. I think it's it's so lovely to read everything you've been through and I'm just going to read something that you um, said in your book. You said I'm grateful every day that Wes and I agreed about every procedure and fully supported each other as fertility issues and miscarriage can put a serious strain on relationships And I just think the love you must have for each other is incredible. I'm so happy for you now with your family of five that I know I know there is day to day struggles and I'm sure everything (laughs) isn't perfect, but I'm just so happy for you as a couple. And speaking on that, what is the greatest love story do you think that is ever told? Well, thank you, first of all. Yes, day to day with the kids, we have to remind ourselves that, um, you know, we have to put ourselves first as well and go on our date nights and that kind of thing and enjoy each other's company. Um, The greatest love story, I think a shout out to Romeo and Juliet, um, probably because I studied it in school. I can't remember, was it for the junior cert or the leaving cert at this stage? But um, I, when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, posters all over the walls of my bedroom. <laughs> and so when the, the movie came out, I must have watched it five, six times. And I was obsessed with the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack as well and the whole story. So, you know, it's nice to have studied the story from a literary perspective um, and then to have also seen the movie and listened to the soundtrack. And do you think it's influenced what you would look for in love or in relationships? I'm not sure if I'd say that. I'm not sure if anything outside, you know, if any of those sorts of outside influences have affected our relationship. Because, you know, it's easy to look at movies or even shows like Love Island and think that that's what modern, you know, relationships are based on or should be based on. Um, But, you know, relationships, I think, are are so personal to the people involved that I suppose I would try not to allow those sorts of influences in. Um, Certainly not now. I mean, Wes and I are together since, I think it was August 2006, actually, we met. So that's Quite a long time. Wow, nearly, what, nearly 15 20 or 16 years. years. Yeah. 16 years. <laughs> oh my God. And we're married eight years. So, um, you know, I think we're, we're well used to each other now and um, we know each other well. Okay, so this is off script, but if you were to write a love story, what would you think are the most important things you'd need to convey between the couple? Like, what are the most important things about a love story? You know what, I think, and again, this is just purely from the perspective of someone who's been in a long-term relationship but you know friendship is so important being able to communicate because at the beginning you know you go through that honeymoon period and it's all really exciting and romantic and you're you know going on dinner dates and little holidays together and it's it's 
exciting. But, you know, you do settle down into the mundane, everyday kind of life and routine and, you know, getting up early, going to work, coming mm-hmm. home late, um, you know, making making dinner, just, you know, the normal everyday relationship stuff. And I think you need a strong basis for that aspect of life where you can come home from work in the evening and chat about your day and you want to spend time together. And then, of course, when it comes to or if and when you're lucky enough to have a family like we've been, you know, you really do need a strong basis again for your relationship because, you know, small babies and small children do test your patience and your strength as an individual and as a couple. Certainly in those early months when you're so sleep deprived. I mean, last year, the boys, the twins, up until probably September, October, were kind of only giving us four or five hours sleep a night. And you're wrecked and you're grumpy a lot of the time. You're bickering with each other. So it's just important to have that sort of basis where you're where you're strong as a couple and you just really respect each other and appreciate each other and then you can sort of get through the more difficult times because you know obviously we're all going to meet challenges in life nobody gets through life um, easily without any ups and downs and I think in a relationship you just have to acknowledge that and just be there for each other even if it means not talking when you both come home but Mm. just you know having that support in place honestly me and Wes at the moment because life is so busy with work and kids we could go weeks without seeing each other outside of the house until suddenly one of us is like oh my god we, we really have to go on some kind of dinner date and see each other outside of you know tracksuits and pajamas mm-hmm. and you know, hair in a ball and no makeup and that kind of thing you know it's it's nice to keep the spark in that way well you've three books behind you and i think that's an incredible love story the mundane the living the normal <laughs> life after just wanting that for so long i think it would make a great book and i think you'd tell it really well <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> so moving on from that, what do you know of life that can't be learnt in books? Well, I do think, and I've always thought that books are, I mean, amazing teachers, as we've said, they can bring you into somebody else's life and experiences and journeys. But I do think that they, you know, they can't teach you about yourself in the way that living your life and experiencing life and um you know, experiencing relationships and friendships, you know, in that way can teach you about yourself. So um, I love that books can take you away from your present or take you into a whole different world. Or and in the case of children, I love looking at particularly Sophia when we're reading to her. I love looking at how she kind of gazes off into the distance as if her, you know, imagination is, is taking her away from the room she's in. But yeah, I don't think books can teach you about yourself in the way that just real life experiences can. It definitely gives you more compassion and empathy for other people's situations. Even, for example, um, in your book, you spoke about somebody at a wedding asking you, so when are you going to have a family? You know, had they read your book or read somebody's book about the struggle of that some people go through, maybe they wouldn't have asked that question. And mm. I think we've all become so much more conscious to not do that, you know, but... That's just one example of what you might learn from books that, you know, Mm. you wouldn't know otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we are becoming much more sort of sensitive to other people's situations and, you know, aware that nobody has, um, nobody gets through life without a challenge or a struggle. Um, But I think, you know, social media is wonderful in so many ways and brings people together and, you know, we all are aware of the benefits of it, but it can also mean that we see other people's lives through 
the lens of of social media and through just the highlights reel that we all put up, whether it's conscious or subconscious. So I think, you know, looking at other people's lives through Facebook or Instagram can make us a little bit maybe desensitized to the everyday struggles we all go through. So I think it's important to be able to share our stories and our vulnerabilities and our difficulties to to show that we are human. We're all vulnerable. We all are just trying to get through, you know, mm-hmm. the day and nobody knows what tomorrow holds. So stories and books definitely show that more vulnerable side to people and, you know, the, the more human side to them as well. You actually said that in your book. I have a little quote that I was just going to read. (laughs) (laughs) I have discovered through sharing details of our fertility struggles online, others can appreciate you showing and discussing your vulnerabilities. Acknowledging that life isn't perfect perfect, shows you are human and normal and almost everybody can relate to feeling scared, anxious or insecure at some stage in their life. None of us gets through life without our fair share of challenges. And I feel that it's important to recognise that. And I think everybody admires you so much for doing that. It's not an easy thing to do as much as we all should do it. We we don't always do it. And it's it's not always easy to, you know, say, address it while it's going on. Or, you know, some days are easier than others to talk about things. But the fact that you've done it in, in a way that it will be there for people when they need it, I think it's it's great. Thank you. I just, I felt it was too important a story to not speak about because it's an experience that so many others will face in the future or have faced or are facing now. And I just strongly felt at the time that I didn't want anybody else to experience what we were experiencing. Even if, you know, I can't magic a baby into somebody's life, of course, and nobody can, but um, to maybe lessen the the emotional trauma of infertility or, or pregnancy loss or even, you know, for a couple going through IVF or surrogacy, it's just to try to normalize maybe the experience a little bit more and show that others have been through it and you do get through it and Hopefully, you know, there will be a happy ending there as well. And I also felt like I've been very fortunate in my life. And, you know, there's so much of my life that I'm so grateful for, Um, you know, friends and family relationships. um, You know, even the war in Ukraine has put into perspective how lucky we are in Ireland to to live in a safe country. So, you know, there's so many things to be positive for that, you know, I felt that facing the the fertility challenge that um, we faced is just an aspect of life that is just something that, you know, I had to deal with and accept and um, try to cope with as best as possible. So, um, you know, it came from a place of just being grateful for everything else. Speaking of the war in Ukraine, I saw you, you welcomed your surrogate home and I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. That must have been such a crazy experience and to be able to, give back I could read how grateful you were in the book and I could feel it for what she had given you and done for you like oh god how was that how was that experience you know I just feel this is the story that keeps on giving because yeah it's been surreal honestly um back in February when we heard about the invasion had had begun I messaged her and just said you know if she could get out of Ukraine she would have a home to come to in Ireland and at the time she wasn't able to leave her city Kherson in southern Ukraine it was quite quickly actually after the war started it was occupied by Russia so I stayed in contact with her and then in I think it was actually my birthday 17th of April I saw on her Instagram stories that she um, had tagged herself as being at the Polish border 
So, of course, messaged her and said, this is amazing, you got out. She doesn't speak English, so we have to communicate through Google Translate. So, um, anyway, we did that messaging back and forth. And she said, we don't know what to do next. And I said, well, come to Ireland. We'll give you somewhere to live and we'll keep you safe. And so she did. And it was a logistical challenge, um, to, to put it mildly, to get her. So it was her, her partner, her little girl, um, five and a half year old girl and their husky. So it would have been fine more or less straightforward to just put them on a flight from there and get them to Dublin. But of course, they weren't going to leave their dog behind. Nobody would. So um, we had to get them onto a train to um, Hanover. They stayed in Hanover in a refugee camp for about five or six days. And then it was just trying to work out how to get them onto a plane with the dog and get them into Ireland. So it just happened. I mean, the amount of support and help we we had from so many different people. I mean, the minute we said we were trying to get Ukrainians over to Ireland, just everybody was so supportive and helpful. So my dad happened to know a Lufthansa pilot in Germany um, who managed to arrange for them to, first of all, that we had to get a crate for the dog and did that. And then the dog had to go to the vet and, um, you know, get all the various shots and, and certificates and all that. And then, you know, I had to be in touch and do paperwork through the Department of Agriculture here to let them know there was a dog coming over and then, you know, wait for the right aircraft to get the dog on because not all of them transport animals and get the go-ahead from the vet. And then they missed one of the flights. So this pilot had to take them back to his house um, about an hour from Frankfurt <laughs> and look after them, give them a shower, give them clean clothes and, you know, all of that breakfast and then took them back. So Eventually, anyway, about 10 days of this back and forth stuff, um, we eventually got them onto a flight on the 25th of April. And me and my mom went to the airport to meet them. And it was just so emotional. I think they were just just exhausted and numb from traveling. But me and my mom were there like bits in the airport. And, you know, this is the woman who gave birth to my daughter. I watched her give birth to my daughter. And that was a surreal experience in itself. And I remember at the time, just after after she'd had Sophia and Sophia was taken off to be weighed and cleaned, I remember thinking, how can I ever repay this woman? You know, it, it didn't seem right that we would just hand over a payment because, as I've spoken about before, we opted for commercial surrogacy under um, legal advice, and medical advice. So I remember thinking it doesn't seem right just to pay her and that'd be that. And I just remember thinking, if anything I can ever do for her, I'll do it. So... It's just funny how life twists and turns and comes up with these surprises. So we have put her into an apartment close to us. I wouldn't, as I've said already, I wouldn't put her through the torture of living with three toddlers. It's just <laughs> too chaotic. Um, but we have um, put, her, put them into an apartment close by and they're near kind of the dart and transport. Although we've since organised a car for them because one of the ladies has a full Ukrainian license, which enables her to drive here in Ireland. And, you know, since then, it's just we've seen them. I mean, a lot. I mean, say three times a week, I'm kind of over. Sophia has play dates with her little girl, Milana, who's five and a half. And they're really good friends, even though they can't speak the same language. It's just that sort of international language of play that children have. And then it's just been a case of kind of settling them in. You know, I managed to secure a job for her partner, um, a local job, um, got Milana into a Montessori and she, she'll actually be starting junior infants later this month, I think, or next month. And then it's just the practicalities of you know, settling people into life here. And it's everything from, you know, organizing 
all the day-to-day stuff that you don't necessarily think about because we've grown up here and lived here all our lives um, and things like school books and school uniforms and um, bank accounts, phones, uh, Wi-Fi, you know, just all that kind of stuff. You know, it's been amazing. It's been surreal. I mean, every time I'm there with them or they can come over to our house quite a bit as well, I just look at her and think, my goodness, you gave birth to my daughter. It's just surreal that Sophia's there you know she's getting to know them I'll be able to tell her in the future that she had this relationship with them because you know I suppose none of us know what the future holds in terms of of the war and how long they'll be here or or what's going to happen but you know it's an amazing story to be able to tell Sophia in the future as well Um, but they're learning English and really settling in well they seem really happy and relaxed and just getting to know life in Ireland and they're they go on little adventures on the Doris quite a bit to kind of place like Bray up and down the coast. Um, and it's just been, yeah, an amazing experience. And we, we actually did an interview recently for an article that's coming out soon. And I bowled my way through the interview because it was the first time telling the whole story in that way from start to finish. But really the gist of it is, you know, she, Anastasia is her name, but I call her, her nickname is Nastia. So Nastia helped, helped me she helped Wes when and my family when we needed the help most and god I'm getting emotional again but you know she helped us by having our daughter by carrying Sophie and giving birth to her so you know we then were able to help her when she needed it most you know her family needed our help so it's just been you know one of these amazing kind of life experiences where somebody comes into your life and you I didn't expect after she had Sophia that we would see her again, you know, physically. I, I knew we'd probably stay in touch, but you know, I didn't think um, n- none of us ever thought this would happen. But it's yeah, it's been amazing. Um, although over, I will admit it's been overwhelming at times, just because the sheer responsibility I feel of looking after my own family as well as a second family and and just trying to make sure they're they're happy and comfortable and settling in okay. But um, other than that, it's been amazing. Oh my, just listening to that whole story, I have goosebumps. I'm glad you're getting emotional because I'm here and I'm like, wow, like it's incredible. And I just think you're incredible for everything you're doing for them. And if anyone can do it, you can, because you are just the queen of managing so many different things. And I also have to say, <laughs> of course, the dog is front and centre because I know how much you love your animals. So the fact you had to get him on a flight and on a train, it's just funny. It's a funny part of the story, I think. And I'm glad he's in Ireland now and adapting to the, <laughs> to the life here. It is. And do you know what? We actually ended up organising a car for them just this week because they came over to our house for a play date last weekend and they took the Lewis. We're close enough to the Lewis. And uh, she said, um, oh, it was a nightmare to bring the dog in the Lewis. We were nearly kicked off. And she's not able to use buses really because they don't allow this big husky on the bus as well. So I just thought, my God, they're not going to be able to travel around if they don't have a car to travel in. So it's just one of those sorts of challenges that came up that had to be dealt with um, pretty quickly because, uh, you know, they don't want to leave the dog in the apartment alone either because, um, you know, if it's barking and disturbing neighbours, mm. then nobody would be appreciative of that. Um, so, yeah, but the dog, as you say, came front and centre and the dog would not be left behind. <laughs> oh, fair play. You've given them a real, you know, a real shot at making the best out of a really really terrible circumstance so I think you mm. should, you're like it's really admirable what you've done but I have another good question for you and I'm, I'm pretty okay. sure I know the answer to this one 
<laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. In the story of your life, what's been the biggest plot twist? I suppose to go back nearly 20 years, um, definitely the, the winning Miss World um, changed the course of my life. Um, as I can see now from, from looking back, um, I expected at the time that I would just... You know, have my year as Miss World and it was an amazing experience and I, you know I traveled everywhere and it was fantastic but I just thought that would be that and I'd go back to college and have a normal life but it's been an amazing um, journey since then and you know definitely changed the course of my life but obviously then my my family and um, fertility experience then more recently has has been another huge plot twist you know almost two decades two decades later. Um, so I think there, I mean, to, to pinpoint any two huge life-changing experiences, it would be them. Yeah, so for anybody who doesn't know, you, after being told you'd probably never be able to conceive naturally and hold a baby and bring it to full term, you conceived <laughs> Id- identical twin boys. I know, not one, but two babies. Um, I suppose just to, to go back slightly, we had welcomed Sophia in November 2019 and we were actually all set to go through surrogacy again with Nastia um, in July 2020. Uh, she had agreed, well, offered to go for it a second time with our, our eggs that are our embryos that are still frozen over in Ukraine. And, you know, we just thought that's amazing. That's our family. You know, she's a, she's an amazing person and she was so positive and relaxed and responsible throughout the pregnancy. And um, so then I had missed a couple of periods in early 2020 and thought nothing of it. Sophia was a newborn and I was not sleeping at all. So just thought it was my body's out of sync reaction to having a newborn. And um, so I ended up anyway having a, a miscarriage at 11 weeks in early March 2020, which was a huge shock and surprise. But it gave me this glimmer of hope, which, um, of course, you would have read in the book where I thought, gosh, if my body can get to 11 weeks or 10 and a half, I think it was coming on to 11 um, and, you know, much over a month further than any other pregnancy, then maybe it might just happen so um we were told obviously in the the hospital um at the time of the the miscarriage i was told to be a little bit careful if i didn't want to have a repeat pregnancy um, but i thought what if we're not very careful and it, you know it does work um so it did anyway it was only i think six weeks later that we got pregnant with hugo and oscar and at the time I had, I mean, my cycle was all over the place as happens after a miscarriage. And I just, I texted this doctor I'd seen previously and just said, look, I was in Hollis Street having a a really bad, painful miscarriage last month. I'm pregnant again now. What should I do? And he just, he got me in for a scan and um, I was earlier date wise than I thought I was. So he only identified a little kind of empty sack and we thought it was what they call an an embryonic pregnancy, um, which meant there's a sack but no baby. So disappointing, but I thought it's fine, I'll, I'll survive it. I've I've been through enough at this stage and we have Sophia. So I went in the following week, detected um a, a baby and a heartbeat, and then that was very exciting because I'd never even got to the stage of of seeing a heartbeat. Went in for the third week and um he detected two heartbeats. So that was yeah, May 2020, as you said. And really that was just 
uh, incredible. I mean, I have it all recorded on, you know, on my phone because Wes couldn't come in at the time due to COVID restrictions. I actually posted the video on Instagram, I think, um, a few months ago. I had a few choice words for my reaction to it. I think I just said, holy shit, times. Um, and, you know, it was just the most extraordinary feeling and tried not to get too excited that early on. But as the pregnancy progressed, I got to the 20 week point, you know, had that um, 20 week scan. I began to just really have to deal with this. Um, I've spoken about before as well, probably this feeling of survivor's guilt where I just thought, you know, I thought I was the girl who couldn't have one baby, let alone two. But it's apparent now that I'm pregnant with two healthy babies and this is going to go full term. Um, I had to deal with a lot of these emotions suddenly where I was happy to be the girl who couldn't have a baby naturally. But now suddenly I was pregnant with twins. And yeah, it was a, a bizarre bizarre mix of emotions really to discover I was pregnant with the boys and um, it took a long time to get my head around I can only imagine you'd been through so much and mm-hmm. oh my god that your life now I'd say for a long time and probably still is just manic you had three three kids under <laughs> one right mm, so the boys were born three days before Sophia turned one yeah so for, well for three days I had three under one but we, were, we weren't home from hospital then um but I did have then three under two and now three under three Are they Irish um, because triplets? they all have November birthdays yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> it, it'll mean though I suppose that their birthdays are three days apart so we're going to join birthday parties for as long as we can get away with it absolutely they're going to be the best of friends when they grow up <laughs> in the story of your life yeah. What do you think is your next chapter? You know what? And this is half joking, but mainly not joking. It's just really surviving the day and the week. It's, as you say, so manic with three under three. And, you know, we do have fantastic help and support. And my my family has been an amazing help. But I just find myself trying to get through each day intact, make sure everyone's happy and fed and baths, and even if I'm not. But um, yeah, it's just trying to get through and make the most of this time together. Sophia starts preschool in three weeks. So I'm a ball of emotions about it and kind of veering from feeling really sad and sorry for myself that my baby's growing up and then feeling really excited for her that she's embarking on this new adventure. Um, so yeah, the next next focus is to get her settled into school um, and then I'll still have obviously two toddlers at home so <laughs> I can't feel too sorry for myself um, but yeah I mean this year is just about um, really focusing on on the children and trying to get a little bit of work done here and there where I can as well. Well you're you're a superwoman and I'm so grateful for you coming on the podcast today and I just love your story I'm so so happy for you that it's worked out the way it has and I'm sure there's only great things ahead for you and your family. Oh, thank you Louise and thank you so much for having me on. Thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of Open Book. I really hope you enjoyed it. Rosanna is just such an incredible, admirable person. Her book, When Dreams Come True, is available in all Irish retailers and online. And as always, the books discussed and recommended can be found in the podcast description. Don't forget to rate, share and follow us wherever you can. It will help us grow and get more amazing guests on. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any feedback, drop us an email at openbook at goloudnow.com. Talk to you next week.